Before we get going, I just want to say thank you to the Bitbox O2 by Shift Crypto. Um, they approached me a little while back, asked if uh, they were interested or if I was interested in sponsorship. And uh, I've resisted it a little bit in the past just because, um, you know, I like to actually use the products that uh, I'll be supporting on the show. And I've been playing around with it recently, and uh, it's just a really great uh, addition to my hardware wallet mix. You know, a lot of people are reaching out to me, and I'm sure many of you guys listening right now, about getting into Bitcoin and buying Bitcoin. And uh, the thing I always say as part of that uh, initial conversation or text message exchange is, Yes, like this is the way to buy it in whatever jurisdiction you're in, but don't forget that the immediate next step is to take self-custody of it because after all, this is all about freedom and self-sovereignty. And if you don't take that step, you're, you're kind of, you know, you're, not, you're leaving a lot on the table in terms of the value proposition of Bitcoin. And uh, the hardware wall is great. It's uh, got a lot of awesome features. It's fully open source. It's got coin control. It, it connects to your own node. Um, and it's got a really slick, easy to use interface um, without a lot of noise, but all the features that you want in a really um, easy way to use it. And I find it's really great for, you know, someone a bit more experienced as well as someone who's new to the game. So um, thank you to Bitbox02 for the support. If you want to check them out or if you want to pick one up, you can go to shiftcrypto.ch forward slash rapid fire for 5% off. All right. Um, Thanks for doing this, man. I'm, uh, I've been looking forward to this. Uh, I've been watching what you guys have been doing uh, with great anticipation. So uh, I appreciate you taking the time. And maybe for, for everyone who's not familiar with you and the company, uh, maybe we start there with a brief intro and then we'll get rolling. Um, yeah, so I'm Matt Hill. I'm one of the co-founders of Start9, Start9 Labs, actually. Um, we're a Denver-based company. Um, and we started back in October of 2000. And, uh, 19. So, you know, pretty under wraps, the four of us just chilling in an office. Uh, well, my house, I guess, um, and figuring out what we wanted to do. Uh, it was a crew that had worked together prior. Um, and, you know, we sort of all assumed that if we just kind of locked ourselves in a room and hung out for a while, and uh, eventually something pretty special would come out of that room. I mean, my partners are the best people I've ever worked with. Uh, most talented, ambitious um, people I've ever known. And, uh, you know, we we just figured that we could do something cool. Um, and we ran through a couple of different ideas in that process. Uh, all the while, we kept cash flow coming by doing some contract work uh, just on the side. Um, and then ultimately, Start9 came about, uh, and which is a very, very ambitious project. Um, we are setting out to you know, uh, reimagine personal computing uh, and adapt it to what we like to refer to as sovereign computing, um, which is personal computing except sovereign, uh, which is not something that has been easy or even possible to do for the vast majority of people uh, in this world. And we can get into sort of what sovereign computing is and how we enable it for the everyday person. Um, and I'm sure that's what a lot of this call will be about yeah um and just for everyone listening my uh special circumstances today required a kind of ad hoc um setup for this so if the audio is not what it typically is i apologize for that um but yeah i think the reason why i'm interested in this in this field i mean bitcoin generally of course but what you guys are doing and this idea of 
sovereign computing and be more in control of the services you use and the data that you, you, you know, leak or relinquish as a result of using them is because, you know, I, I think we're in an environment now where we're going to have to be increasingly considerate about uh, the, the footprint we leave online. You know, the things that we communicate, the information that, that uh, others are able to obtain about us. Um, and I think many of us have maybe not taken the initiative yet to really revamp our our setup about you know all of that and being you know finding the places where we may be falling down in that area. But I think as we move forward in whatever transition is is taking place here, tools that allow you to establish greater sovereignty in your life are of the utmost importance. You know, Bitcoin being chief among them, and then everything down the stack. Uh, so can you can we just discuss like what your initial product is and what functions it performs? Yeah, I mean, quickly, just to comment on some of your statements there. Um, unfortunately, I think a lot of what you just said is true and becoming more true by the day, which is that we need to be careful about the footprints that we leave. Um, the fact that there are footprints is the essence of the problem. Uh, the fact that we have to be concerned about those footprints is uh, indicative of the age. Um, you know, in the not so distant past, those footprints may not have been so, you know, uh, condemning as they may be and are becoming uh, in the near future. So, you know, we believe that we're a little bit ahead of the curve here in terms of the problem we're solving. Uh, we are definitely not a solution looking for a problem. Uh, we are a solution that has a we'll call it relatively unknown problem, but that is rapidly growing. Um, and that is the consequences of inherent lack of privacy in your digital life. Um, and so we have set out to solve that and we have solved it uh, in, in a small way that is growing uh, by the day. So what our product is, um, for those who understand the, the lingo, it is a personal server. Um, not a lot of people know what to envision when I say personal server. So oftentimes I'll use um, imagery such as a shelf top computer with a remote screen. Um, the Embassy, our flagship product, our only product right now, um, Embassy OS, the operating system is actually our real value proposition, but it monetizes through hardware because it requires physical hardware, um, is, a, is a, you know, a keyboardless, screenless computer that sits on your shelf and runs 24 seven, 365 and runs open source, self-hosted software services that enhance the sovereignty and by derivative privacy in your life. Um, that is a very abstract uh, explanation. More specifically, what the embassy enables is for you to communicate with people in your life uh, without the possibility of third-party surveillance or interference or censorship. It allows you to store files of any sort on your own private cloud and access them from any computer on earth, your phone, your laptop, or somebody else's desktop. It doesn't matter. You can access this little black box that's sitting on your shelf from anywhere on the planet in total anonymity, censorship-resistant privacy. 
uh, whether it's to communicate with other people who have these little black boxes, or whether it's to store files and share files with people in your life, or whether it's to run a Bitcoin node and connect to it from a remote RPC wallet uh, and transact with impunity and privacy. Um, so this is sort of your gateway uh, to the internet. And more than that, it's your territory in the land of the internet, which is why we call it an embassy. This is your sovereign territory in the land of the internet where you can operate um, with impunity uh, outside of the possibility of, um, I shouldn't say outside the possibility, right? It's trust minimized. Um, it is improbable that you would be sort of had in this model as long as you take proper basic precautions. Um, but we believe that we have delivered as a product um, perhaps the closest thing to an, a non-technical individual's ability to exist privately on the internet that has ever existed. Um, and that's what the embassy is. And in terms of how, <clears throat> how someone would go about using this and not just like how they plug it in and then interact, but like consider somebody's, you know, uh, the, the manners in which they engage with the internet broadly today, right? You have your mobile phone, you have your laptop, your computer. How does the embassy fit into this mix? And how do you, if you, let's say you have all three, how is an individual, uh, what's the best way for them to use it in order to mitigate the things that they want to mitigate and the information they'd like to retain exclusively to themselves? Yeah, great question. Um, we think we're clever and we took a very, um, we'll call it clever approach to, how the embassy is used in practice, daily use. And we, what we did was we hijacked existing infrastructure, not only for our own sort of ease of implementation, right? Don't build what you don't need to build in the early days, right? Use that which is available to you. Uh, but also um, because it, you know, it, it's, it works really, really well. And that is the internet. Right, the, the infrastructure of the internet itself and your mobile device and your laptop computer. These are very well-made machines. And so what we do is we leverage the hell out of both of them. Um, the embassy is a Raspberry Pi in a box. That's it, right? There's a little speaker that we hook up to the GPIO pins in order to provide audio feedback to the user, right? When you turn the embassy on, it makes a little bep and then a chime when it's ready and you power it down, it makes a little jingle just to provide audio feedback so you know when the dang thing is ready to use. But otherwise it's a Raspberry Pi in a box. So we are boring on the hardware side of things, very intentionally so, because we want the, the hardware to be commodity such that individuals can build it on their own, that we ourselves are not a central point of failure of this technology. Uh, secondly, adding a screen to this thing or a keyboard or some sort of user interface aside from the little audio speaker was just going to turn us into a hardware company. It was going to complicate our supply chains. It was going to make building it yourself a lot more difficult um, and so forth, right? And now in terms of communication, uh, you know, we didn't set out to build a new internet so that you could connect to your embassy. There's already an internet. All we needed was to leverage the most private aspects of the current internet such that you could communicate with it anonymously and privately. And, you know, uh, most commonly that is referred to as the dark web or the dark net. 
uh, we like to refer to it as the private net, which is basically you know, Tor hidden services talking to one another without relying upon exit nodes to go back to the clear net, right? There's no reason to leave the network. And as long as you're in the network, it is anonymous. It is private. It is end-to-end -end encrypted. It's only when the exit nodes get involved that there's a potential vulnerability with Tor. Um, so that's what we did, is we said, let's use the screen and the keyboard of your phone and your laptop. Let's use the ISPs and this layer just above them, with, which is you know, a SOX5 proxy and Tor. And let's build a private network uh, and user interface for you to reach your server. So the way that this works, I know that that was a lot. When I break it down here, it gets a lot simpler, which is you plug your embassy into the wall, you download an app, uh, which is ours. We call it the setup app. It has a single purpose in life, which is to set up your embassy. Uh, the setup process is basically you claiming this device, telling it who its master is. And you do this by generating a couple of cryptographic keys client side on your phone, right? We don't precede it with anything. The setup process of the embassy is extremely secure. Um, your phone uh, or computer generates a couple of cryptographic keys and you set a password. Those keys and your password are then transferred to the embassy, uh, encrypted using a unique serial number on the bottom of the device. So even the transfer of, of private data to the embassy, the initial transfer on the local area network of your home is secure. Once the embassy has this secret data, two keys uh, and one password, it uses that information to do three things. It uses the first key, uh, to create a Tor hidden service. It uses it to create a cryptographic, a public key that is a Tor v3 URL that nobody knows exists and is the counterpart to a private key that was cr um, created at the time of setup on your phone. So nobody knows that this URL exists. The embassy then hosts itself at that Tor v3 hidden service on the private web. So you can access your embassy now from any Tor-enabled browser, Tor browser, Firefox with a SOX5 proxy enabled, or Brave are the three that we recommend. You can now talk to your embassy simply by visiting its unique, private, unknown Tor v3 URL. The second key that gets passed to the embassy is an RSA key that is then used to generate a uh, SSL certificate authority. Uh, for HTTPS purposes, right? Your normal certificate. It then uses that certificate authority to generate certificates and child certificates for your embassy and all of the services that you install on it, such that you can now visit your embassy over HTTPS while connected to the same LAN. Obviously, you have to be on the same local area network, but you can now communicate with your embassy on the LAN over HTTPS. So even somebody connected to your home network can't sniff the traffic because your phone is or computer is set up to trust the certificate authority of the embassy, which is unique and self-signed. Um, and the third piece of information is your password, which is obviously needed to authenticate to the embassy when you visit its Tor address or its LAN address. So you have two options of visiting your embassy, Tor or LAN. LAN is awesome because it's super fast. It's on the home network, totally encrypted. Tor is like when you're on the go, you're out in the world and you need to reach the box in your home. It's a little slower, but it's equally private and secure. Um, and, and that's it. And so even if somebody did get their hands on your you know, Tor embassy URL, they wouldn't be able to authenticate to it because they don't have your password.
And how does this change the, and that, that was all awesome. And I, I, I believe I've followed you all the way, but how does that impact the user experience? Like, let's just say your average person's daily activities on the web, mm -hmm. right? How is, is the, is the embassy something that you would engage consciously for specific tasks, right? Like, you know, whatever they may be, or is it something that you could funnel most, if not all of your activities through? Mm -hmm. Great question. The embassy is not something you carry with you. It's not a cloaking device for the broader internet. It is a destination unto itself, right? There are certain things that you want to do that you will go to your embassy to do. If you go to google.com, you are on your own. The embassy is not involved. It is not relaying traffic. It's not cloaking anything, right? It doesn't mean that there's a service, like there might be a service out there that you will be able to install on your embassy to then run all your traffic through. Something like Pi-hole is a service that we really like and intend to put on the embassy where you know it is an ad blocker, uh, a network-wide ad blocker for your home internet. So you could plug your embassy in, install Pi-hole, and then configure your router to push everything through Pi-hole, which then filters out all the crap for your kids. Um, so the embassy can do these things, but only on a service basis, right? First and foremost, we have built an operating system and a hardware platform for, I say we built a hardware platform, right? The Raspberry Pi is a hardware platform. We just leveraged it. But we basically have built an operating system that makes running self-hosted open source software easy for non-technical individuals. What open source self-hosted software you install is your business. Start9 in no way, shape, or form is even capable of gating what services you install on your embassy. Now, we have a marketplace. We facilitate the discovery, download, and installation of certain services that we have taken, that we have identified as cool and important and taken the liberty to host on our, on our repository for easy download and install. But it is an open platform. And we have recently published our, we'll call it you know, SDK, our service packaging guide, such that anyone in the world, whether they are affiliated with the project in question or not, can go out and package their favorite self-hosted open source service for distribution on our marketplace, downloadable with the click of a button to any embassy in the world. Now, let's say somebody tries to package up some malware and throw it on our marketplace. Right? We reserve the right to gate our own centralized service marketplace. However, we are building into Embassy OS the ability to toggle between different marketplaces. So if we have determined that we don't want some crap thing on our store because we think it's harmful to people to run, we reserve that right. All they have to do is switch to somebody else's store and go download it from there. It's an open platform, and we want to be only one competitor within a broader marketplace. Um, so far, we are the only marketplace, but it's very early. Right. And so <clears throat> how does something like this compare to... You know, something like a MyNode, which people may be familiar with, which is a Raspberry Pi that has applications or programs, you know, for interacting with Bitcoin and for Tor and stuff like that. What are the primary differences in both what they represent and I guess also uh, as a result of that, the, the intentions of the project? Yeah, um, there's, there's a couple of very key differences, but let me start off by saying that we very much appreciate these other projects. Right, there are a few sort of plug and play node projects and Bitcoin 
was the first open source self-hosted software service that we put on our marketplace. That's how important we think Bitcoin is. Uh, we do recognize that there are non-Bitcoin, non-blockchain things that are quite important as well, like Bitwarden, for instance. Um, but Bitcoin is central. We think it's central to the present and the future, and we wanted to make that clear early on. The problem with launching Bitcoin early on is, is that we got pegged as a plug-and-play Bitcoin node, uh, as a product, which mm -hmm. was fine in the early days. And people are coming around to recognizing that that is not, in fact, what we are. So the primary sort of technological differences between something like a MyNode uh, and an embassy is that MyNode is... Um, I think it's running on uh, a Linux distro of some kind. I'm not sure exactly what their, their base image is, but it's basically that base image with a bunch of bundled services in a package. Okay, so if you were to go set up Bitcoin and then set up Lightning and then set up BTC Pay, there would be a set of instructions for installing Bitcoin. There'd be a set of instructions for installing Lightning. There'd be a set of instructions for installing BTC Pay. What my node has done is just inline to them and hit a button. Right? So you, you plug this thing in, you hit a button, and it just does all the command line stuff that you yourself were going to have to do if you went about it um, uh, on your own, which is fantastic. It is a streamlined way of installing a preset, predefined set of services. The problem, as we see it, is that that's sort of where it ends. Right After that, you're kind of on your own. These things are running on your machine. Any kind of configuration, any kind of maintenance, any kind of expansion or contraction of services is a bundled package uh, that requires an OS update, essentially. You can't, like, you're still SSHing into the box to configure your Bitcoin node. It's not a, it's not an operating system, right? My node is not an OS. It is a bunch of services pre-bundled onto an OS. And you just get what you get, and that's it. And after that, you're kind of on your own. Um, and so what we have done is built truly a, a, an operating system for running self-hosted open source software generally. Uh, it, it doesn't care what type of open source self-hosted software it is. It doesn't care if one service depends on another service. It can handle that, right? I could even install a service that depends on a service that depends on a service that depends on another service being configured in a particular way and the user can put a blindfold on and accomplish this through the UI of Embassy OS. There's no command line. So we have a couple of principles. One is no command line ever. You never, ever, ever have to open up the command line to use your embassy. It doesn't mean that we forbid it. We allow you to throw an SSH key onto your box through the GUI, of course, and then go pull up your terminal and SSH in and do whatever you want. It's your machine. We're not going to stop you. But a basic principle of our UX is no command line. Um, now, what that requires is two things. Um, it requires that all configuration of services, which is a major part of running self-hosted open source software, by the way, is configuration. It's these .conf files, right, where you have to go in and set your, your preferences and then stop the service and then start the service, and then you're back up and running under this new, new set of uh, settings. Um, by eliminating uh, the command line, we had to build a graphical uh, user interface for configuration of these services, which is not easy at all. It's actually very, very difficult to accomplish if you want to do it well. For example, Bitcoin has hundreds, 
of custom configuration options in your bitcoin.com file. You can go in there and set prune heights. You can go in there and add RPC users, usernames, passwords, you name it, right? Now, if you go into your .com file, which first required you to SSH in, and so you've already lost 75% of the population, uh, and you put in a wrong value, if you put in a space where a space does not belong, or you put in a number where a letter was expected, Bitcoin will crash. And it will not really tell you why it's crashing. You can get yourself into a lot of trouble by going in and editing these files that are completely unprotected, that sort of expect you to be technical um, and to know how to debug if you screw something up. So what we did was we went through Bitcoin's entire configuration set of options, identified all the sane values that are allowed to be put in somewhere, right? So um, if, if it says prune height, it's like that number needs to be between zero and blah. And if you put in anything besides zero and blah, Bitcoin's going to be unhappy and it's going to crash. So what we did was we translated all of this to a, to a domain-specific language that creates dynamic user interfaces based on developer settings. Let me break that down a little bit. The developer of Bitcoin, and I don't mean Bitcoin core, I mean the person who packaged Bitcoin for the embassy, the person who wrapped it up is responsible for creating that translation layer between Bitcoin and the user saying, okay, I'm Bitcoin and I need these values. Well, I'm the user and I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I don't want to put values in. And so the middle, the wrapper, the, the protective wrapper around Bitcoin facilitates this interaction. And so to the user, all it feels like when you go to configure Bitcoin, there's no SSH in and edit raw values on the command line. It's click settings of Bitcoin, start changing values. And if you put a value in that Bitcoin doesn't like, it won't let you do it. It'll put a little error up there and it'll say, this value needs to be between this number and this number. To read more about this, click this link. Everything comes with a description about what the configuration is. And, and this is a lot of grunt work, you can imagine. This wasn't like clever hackery stuff. This was just like, okay, let's go look up every configuration set possible for Bitcoin, come up with the bounds of you know, what it needs to be, select a user interface that's going to be good for it. Like, should it be a drop-down menu where you select one of three options? Or should it be an input box? Well, if it's an input box, should we show a phone dial or should we show a full alphabetical keyboard, right? Like such that the user can go in here and just feel like they're using a Google settings of their phone. You know, it's like, it's, we, we basically, mimicked what you would find in these beautiful products that all these centralized companies have put out and adapted it to configuring Bitcoin. So that's one, is that all services on the embassy can be configured in a very sane, easy way through basic settings menus. Number two is dependency management. This idea that some services, particularly in the Bitcoin space, require other services to not only be running, installed, running, and happy, but to be configured in a particular way, right? So Lightning wants, needs Bitcoin. You can't run Lightning without Bitcoin. However, what if you have a node already running, hosted at, you know, johnvallis.com, right? Why should you have to spin up another node on your embassy? Why not just install LND on your embassy and point it to johnballas.com to use as a node? Easy. It's a configuration. You just put in the URL and you're done. Or you can choose to use the LND node that's running on your embassy. Just select from the dropdown, say use internal node, boom. 
Well, let's say you don't have a Bitcoin node running. So you installed LND and you say, I want to use my internal Bitcoin node. LND is immediately going to be like, you don't have an internal Bitcoin node, go install one. And again, you can almost put a blindfold on and go through this process because the UI just tells you what it needs and how to get it and then won't let you make a mistake along the way. So now you go install Bitcoin and now Lightning is happy, LND is happy. So then you go to install Ride the Lightning and Ride the Lightning says, oh, I'm happy too because LND is running. And you can just stack these things, right? You could run any service you want, even if it has multiple dependencies, right? So let's say I install a service that's like, I need LND, BTC pay and Bitcoin all running on this box. You could install that service and the embassy OS will just tell you what to do next. It'll say, oh, you need to get this and you need to configure it in this certain way. Well, that wasn't acceptable to us because we said, you know, that's kind of monkey work. If the UI is like, if, if the UI knows what to do, why should you have to go do it? Can't you just click do it for me? <laughs> right? So we did that as well, which is like, if LND needs Bitcoin to be configured in a particular way, like it needs something in the bitcoin.com file to be six, like this value must be six or else I'm pissed. Then the, whoever wrapped up LND for distribution on our marketplace can state that rule, we call them rules. And LND with the user's permission can actually now go in and configure Bitcoin to be how it wants it to be without you even having to do it. You just say, go configure it for me. It'll tell you what it's gonna do, but then it does it. We call it auto configuration. So what we have done is built a agnostic general purpose operating system for running self-hosted software that does automatic dependency management, automatic configuration, and is completely a la carte in terms of what you run on it and, and when. It has no preference as to what the software is, which makes it completely unique in this entire ecosystem of products. Whereas every other product in that ecosystem is similar to my node. And that is just like, here's a bunch of services, you're on your own. And so how, how does all of that compare to, let's say other uh, companies or services or projects that are attempting to be kind of like sovereign operating systems? Like I know you just went through a lot of the details. I'm not asking you to, to, to rehash and compare every single, thing, but like what it sounds like you're saying is you're a sovereign operating system project company, uh, a certain, you know, a certain hardware is required, whether that's provided by you guys or whether that's built by the individual, doesn't really matter. You guys are about building out this software. Are there, are there other approaches in the market that have maybe a different approach, but a similar goal, which is sovereign private operating system software for people to engage with for similar purposes? Um, I'm aware of one that has that stated goal, and that is Urbit. Mm. Um, Urbit took a very different approach, though, than we did. Urbit built an operating system that requires the development of services, right? Um, as in Urbit took a, if you build it, they will come approach to solving this problem. They built an operating system, which I have not used by the way. So I'm not fully qualified to comment on the details. I just know the overall approach. And they said, okay, the operating system is built. Come on, come all developers and build services for this operating system, build text messaging services and data storage services. And nobody showed up, right? Urbit's been around for a decade, I think. 
and has had little to no traction as far as I'm aware. Uh, we've been around for a year and we have enormous traction. And that's because we didn't take an if you build it, they will come approach. We took a, they're already built. They've been being built for decades. Nobody can use them because of readmes and command lines. <laughs> like the open source self-hosted software ecosystem is rich and expanding by the day. Uh, it is full of passion projects uh, that people built because they wanted to see the world a better place. They built for reputation, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And they say, all right, everybody, now use my thing that I built. And everybody goes, no, I'm going to go use Dropbox because it's super easy. <laughs> and so all we're doing is setting out to make it easier to run the things that already exist. That is our mission as a company. Uh, we don't need to build services. We don't want to build services. Uh, we just want to unleash them. Uh, and nobody else is doing that. Like I said, these things like my node are definitely enabling it for specific services, but it's not a general purpose operating system. Mm -hmm. That's the difference. Um, yeah. It, you, one of the things that comes to mind, and this may be a silly question, but if, if I, when you have something that represents uh, what the embassy represents, so it's in your home and it facilitates your access to, let's say, the private internet, whether you're at home or not, right? It's kind of, that's your doorway. Mm -hmm. It becomes a more important thing to, like the hardware itself, like that, that unit itself, I think you would ascribe more importance to it than your general, you know, your router or, or whatever that might be in your house. Is there such a thing as like hosting them in, in various places for redundancy or security purposes? You're looking down the roadmap, but yes. Um, you know, our mission, you know, I described in a very specific way what we're doing, which is making running self-hosted open source software easy for everyone. What's implied in that statement is all sorts of crazy edge cases and security considerations, right? It's like, well, it's easy to set up, but what happens if someone gets your box? What happens if there's a fire in your home? These are all part of what I think of as making it easy because it's not just about getting it set up and getting it running. It's about keeping it running indefinitely and without risk or minimizing risk. And so this is our roadmap, right? The MVP, the product that we are selling today, and it's not quite MVP, it's maybe one step beyond that at this point, um, is more of the get it up and running, it works, but you need to take some manual precautions to make sure that you don't lose data or have a security breach, such as making backups. We have a backups feature where you plug in a little thumb drive USB stick and you back up your services. That way, if there's a fire in your home or somebody steals your embassy or whatever, you can just get another one, plug it in and, and recover your previous state. Um, so that's our current you know, uh, disaster recovery UX, which is manual and not ideal, but it works and requires a little bit of self-responsibility. Um, what we're moving towards is very exciting uh, for us. We like can't wait. We're working so quickly. Um, and we just never fast enough, is we want you to have your own fleet. We want you to have your own cluster of not only embassies, right, personal servers, but any internet connected device. This is where we're going as a company. This is where the end game is, is you should be able to plug an embassy into your home uh, in Denver, for example, for me, and then go to Florida and plug another one in and then go to you know, the EU and plug another one in. 
And these things should all be aware of each other because they were all created by the same person. You sort of share some secrets and now they can find each other on the private web and therefore can uh, share, can load balance uh, services, um, can share data for redundancy purposes. Um, and even if you didn't have multiple, in the nearer future, before what I just described is possible, you will be able to create encrypted backups of your data and store them on other people's embassies through downloading a service. So I would download a service, it's called you know, data backup, and you're running data backup, and so I can store my stuff on your embassy encrypted. You have no idea what you're storing. And I can ping you, you know, a uh, hundred times an hour to make sure that you still have it and that you can prove it to me using Merkle proofs where I challenge you on some random piece of data, you know, every hour and you prove to me that you have it without actually knowing what data you have. Um, and I could store this in eight different places and maybe pay some sats along the way for it, right? Where you can make some money by storing other people's data and you can spend money to get data redundancy. Um, that's not a pie in the sky thing. That's a 2021 story for us. Um, and you know, the first step to making that possible is enabling external drive support, which we don't currently. It's probably the largest shortcoming of the embassy at present is that you are confined to the micro SD card that we ship on the device, which is very bad uh, long-term. It's fine for right now, but the shelf life on those things, especially when you're doing a lot of read-write is not fantastic. It's gonna be a few years. So we are rushing to ship uh, external drive supports so that you can migrate your stuff onto not only a faster drive, but a more secure drive. Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions. Like if we're if we're ostensibly using this, at least in part, as like our own personal cloud, then obviously we need some some space on it to do so. Yep. What's the reason why it didn't begin with that support? Um, so we didn't need it, uh, as in you know, the device today runs, I think we have 11 or 12 services on the store, including some pretty beefy ones like Bitcoin uh, and LND. And these things run just fine uh, uh, and the current setup. Now we know it's not ideal, but that's the point of an MVP is to ship and iterate. So as long as the proper disclaimers are shipped with it and people are making backups, there isn't any real danger. There's just inconvenience, right? There's the possibility that you are going to need to rotate your storage. Um, but we were only, you know, we started selling embassies exactly a year ago. So we are not approaching the time when these devices will start failing, right? All memory fails. It doesn't matter whether it's a terabyte SSD, it's gonna fail eventually. But micro SDs, flash drives will fail faster, especially when you're doing heavy operations on them. Um, but we have years. So as long as we ship this, uh, capability sooner rather than later, the migration process will not only be uh, fast, but it'll be easy, as in the operating system itself will just be a button. You'll basically plug in an external drive and hit migrate data, and you'll be onto this new drive and you'll be done. And then from there, you can do subsequent migrations or spread your data out to multiple drives. So you'll be able to plug in like three different SSDs into your embassy. And every time you go to install a service, you will select which drive you want it to live on. So you could actually get like three different colored drives, one for your Bitcoin stuff, one for your file stuff, one for this, and keep them separate like that. And then if at any point you ever wanna migrate data from one drive to another, it's just a button in the UI. So it's a very, you know, um, it's a very advanced 
cool feature that again, nobody else has something like that, but that's not coming until the next major version of Embassy OS, which is scheduled for the first half of this year. So within the next couple of months. Right. And what's the, the revenue model for this right now? Like how, we sell how, devices. You sell we the sell devices. Them. Yeah. We monetize through hardware. Okay. So someone can't just build their own and then, oh, you know, buy yeah. the. You absolutely can. Yeah. So there's three ways to get your hands on an embassy. One is to buy the device from us, plug it into a wall. That's the most convenient way. Mm -hmm. uh, number two is to build the device yourself and then buy the operating system from us, um, which is fully imaged. You just flash it to a card and do it. Um, that is a sort of intermediate product. We don't think that's going to live on, right? It's sort of in between the two better options, which is buy the device for maximal convenience or build the device yourself and compile from source, right? Like build the operating system from source and, do, and then you get it all for free, right? You're not even doing business with us at that point. You go, you get a pie, you put it together, you compile the source code and you're off and running. The only reason that we have the intermediate product today, which is build the hardware, buy the software is because building from source is still hard, right? Not many people can do it. So we wanted a way for people around the world to have an embassy without having to buy a physical device. So we created this sort of intermediate product where we would sell the operating system, but we are actively making the build from source approach easier and easier and easier such that anyone who wants to build from source and build their own Raspberry Pi can do it for free. People who want maximal convenience can buy from us. That is our current revenue model and business model. And, and what's the price on the, on the box and the OS separately? Uh, separately? Yeah. So if you build the box yourself, you pay whatever you can pay for. I mean, you're buying a Raspberry Pi, a case, a speaker, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for, to, to buy the OS. The OS we price in Bitcoin. It's currently 200,000 sats. So obviously that fluctuates day to day, but we sell it for 0.002 Bitcoin currently. Mm -hmm. um, and we adjust that. We retarget it along with Bitcoin difficulty uh, retargets. And we don't retarget it for a particular dollar value. We retarget it for a good looking sat value that kind of covers <laughs> in the range of like a hundred to $130 somewhere in there. Uh -huh. um, you know, we're, tr we're trying to do our part to price things in Bitcoin. Right. <laughs> and like that unit of account milestone is a big one, right? Yeah. That's, that's the end game. You get unit of account and the whole thing falls apart. <laughs> it's yeah. like, so we all have to do our part to price things in sats. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Um, so, so that's, that's it. We sell the embassy uh, in full for $270. Right. And that's priced in dollars because unfortunately at present for the sake of expediency, we're using Shopify. So we will be migrating off of Shopify to a self-hosted e-commerce solution, but it was so fast and easy. They do such a great job that we just had to roll with it. And then what we do is we just request customer data deletion on a rolling basis. So right. we're like, we, we do our best, but um, we, we had to ship globally overnight. So we were like, screw it. Let's, yeah. let's roll with it. Yeah. Um, I know you touched on this a little bit already, but just to, to address it a little, maybe more directly or like, what's the main, where do you see this in five years? I know it's a cliche question, but like, what's the main mission of what you guys are building and how do you see it manifesting over the next, you know, three to five? Uh, yeah, great question. Um, you know, we're a business, which is really hard to be in the space that we're operating in and the objectives that we have as a company, 
uh, it's hard to be a business. It's very easy to be a foundation um, because the two can come into conflict, right? Uh, and so we think that we have found the gap. Um, like for instance, at present, we were a little concerned at first that maybe if we made the build from source model so easy uh, that nobody would buy embassies from us, that they would all just build from source. And um, not only have we reverted on that, but we sort of in retrospect, look back and laugh at ourselves because um, we're only talking about a tiny little subset of the population, right? The, the very fact of having to go to the hardware store and buy a Raspberry Pi is the showstopper. It doesn't even matter how easy it is to build from source. You're just not gonna get people buying motherboards, putting them in boxes, and then going to GitHub and downloading something. It's just not gonna happen. Not with our target market, right? The fact that we started off with Bitcoiners you know, hardcore libertarians, crypto anarchists, people who are more technical and more determined to accomplish these things is not indicative of our market. And even they are just buying the embassy. So it's like, if we're, if they're buying the embassy, imagine what grandma's going to do. She's not going to go to the store. So that's our business model. We think it's sustainable. We think that we can sell commodity hardware that you could buy at the convenience store uh, to people at a markup for the sake of convenience. As long as we don't overcharge, right? Mm -hmm. What we're really charging for is convenience. We're charging for the plug and play white glove experience. Mm -hmm. Now, what else we can do is this, and this is part of our business model that we have not yet implemented, is that each device that we ship has a unique product key on it, comes engraved on the bottom of the device. Think of it as like a serial number, okay? We have a master list of every product key we have ever created. We do not correlate those product keys in any way, shape, or form to individuals. In fact, we can't correlate them if you downloaded the OS from source, but we don't correlate them by, by practice, nor would it matter much if we did, okay? There's nothing that we can do with this product key. The product key is for you, not for us. And what the product key does is it serves two purposes. One is it is the initial OTP for claiming the device, right? When you plug this thing in on your the, for the first time and it broadcasts itself on your local area network, you are entering the product key to prove that you're looking at the device because it's on the bottom of the device and the product key is flashed into the image of the operating system. So it's one-to-one. -one. And this is your initial one-time password that you use to tell the device who its master is. And then after that, it's useless. The only thing that matters is the password that you set. So um, and this is all happening on the local area network of your home. So even if we or somebody else in the world had your product key, they could do nothing with it unless they were also connected to your Wi-Fi network at the exact moment you were setting up the embassy. It's a tiny little attack vector. It's the tiniest little sliver of thing that there's no way around. This is how it needs to be done. Um, and so that's one purpose. The second purpose of the product key is that it's your proof that you're a customer of ours that you bought from us as opposed to building. Now we haven't implemented anything yet, but we plan to give all sorts of cool perks to people who buy from us rather than build from source, right? Uh, as in we will do, you know, maybe a free tier of encrypted data backups. Uh, and we would be one of the participants on a decentralized network of data storage. But if you bought from us, we'll give you 10 gigabytes for free. Uh, you know what I mean? To store encrypted on our, instance of this decentralized storage network. Um, we might do health checks. We might say, hey, if you want, um, using your product key, you can 
register your embassy's Tor URL to our little bot and it will ping your embassy, you know, every five seconds to make sure that it's online. And if it's not online, we'll send you an email saying it's offline. And of course, again, we would only be one participant in an open market for that service. We don't ever want to be the only person who can do something because it's an attack vector, it's a vulnerability. Um, and then maybe we'll do discounts, right? Hey, you can use your product key to once a year, get an embassy at 30% off and buy it for your friends or family or just upgrade your own device, whatever. So we can continue our white glove support. That's a great one, right? You have a product key. You don't even need to tell us your product key. You just need to sign a cryptographic message with your product key that we can then run against our set of database private keys or product keys and uh, confirm that you are in fact a customer. Now, let's say you leak your product key to all your friends and family and you leak it online and suddenly everyone's calling in to get white glove support with your product key. Well, no, we, we know which product key, right? We can, we can blacklist it. We can just be like, eh, it leaked, it's dead, goodbye. Like, you know, keep it for you. Um, and this is just an idea that we're playing with. And we think that there's something here, right? In other words, what I'm describing is an implementation of a monetization strategy of community. We are monetizing community. We're saying that you sort of get access to all these communal things if you have, if you can prove that you are a customer of ours rather than somebody who built from source. Now, let's say you're somebody who built from source for privacy reasons, for security reasons. We're not going to discourage that. So what you can do is build from source, buy the hardware yourself, do the whole assembly, and then just you create your own product key and then just register it with us. And now you can get access to all these services and that registration costs X amount of sats and you're in, right? And not right. required, you don't need to do it. But if you want to be part of the community, even though you built from source, you can do that. Right. So that's another one. Um, what do you make of, and, and what is the, what are the differences, trade-offs, synthesis uh, opportunities between what's happening more broadly speaking with Lightning? You know, there's a lot of excitement lately about this kind of starting to emerge as a, you know, private decentralized web 3.0 sort of narrative around it. Yeah. What's your take on that? And then how does that affect what you guys are doing at Start9? Well, our take on it is we think it's really cool. Um, you know, uh, particularly like what Sphinx is doing right now, I think is fantastic. Uh, Sphinx will be available on the embassy in the near future. So how it affects us is the, the, if, if the web three, if layer Bitcoin layer three, right, applications built on top of Lightning began to take off and be useful, we're ready. We already have Bitcoin, we already have Lightning, and I just told you that we have a general purpose operating system that can handle any application at any tier of dependency with GUI configuration. So we uh, can launch these services uh, with ease and make them available to anyone with an embassy uh, very smoothly and quickly. And so we also don't think that everything needs to be built on top of uh, the internet of money. Right now, we could be wrong. I'm, I'm actually very curious to see how this future plays out. You know, a couple of years ago, somebody would have been very quick to say, well, that you don't need a blockchain for that, mm. right? Because you don't. You don't need a blockchain for most things. You need a blockchain for trustless decentralized consensus. Um, otherwise, a database will do just fine. 
And, uh, and so you look at the ecosystem of open source self-hosted software and the vast majority of it is not on a blockchain. Uh, for instance, we have Bitwarden on the embassy, which is a self-hosted password manager, which is probably the most useful service we have. I can't imagine why that would ever need to be built on top of Lightning, ever. Like it just doesn't, it, there's no peer-to-peer -peer aspect of it. It's a private service, right? And even if it was peer-to-peer, you only need the economic incentives if there's an attack vector without them, right? Mm -hmm. As in like group chat, like one of the arguments that Sphinx makes about group chat is that if you fire up a group chat channel with a million people on it, you're gonna get spam, right? It's the spam bots. And so by building it on top of lightning, you're creating an economic incentive or disincentive to spam the channel. So I buy it and I support it and the embassy will launch it and everyone's happy. But we are not sort of putting all of our eggs into the Bitcoin stack because we think there's a ton of useful software in the world that is not only not Bitcoin, but not blockchain <laughs> at all. And you should be able to run it with ease, just like you can with Bitcoin. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I appreciate that answer. And it's going to be really interesting to see how all this stuff plays out, you know, because it's, it's such new territory, especially in the domain of Bitcoin and Lightning and that kind of stuff. It's, uh, it's fascinating. Um, you mentioned that the team that you're with now, you guys were together prior. What were you guys working on before this? Um, the, the majority of the Start9 team today came from Salt Lending. Uh, I'm not sure if you or your audience is familiar with Salt. Yeah, I, I remember. Yeah, uh, so do I. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I can give you the brief story there um, sure. without getting into too many details because I really don't want to. Mm -hmm. um, I joined Salt as the first developer. Uh, I was the first engineering hire at Salt. And I was not hired as like the CTO. I was hired as a project manager with the project being bootstrap the entire technology department, <laughs> including architecting this lending platform that they had promised the world during a token sale, which I came in right after, uh, after they had raised money and they needed to build the thing that they were promising to everybody. So I came in and was like, that's a cool opportunity. I get to build this cool stuff on Bitcoin and build my own team from scratch. And that's like a huge thing. So I went in and I did, uh, I hired Keegan McClelland was my first hire. Uh, and he complimented me in every way you could imagine. Uh, the things I was good at, he was not great at. And the things I was not great at, he was great at. And together, we sort of then built out SALT's, uh, we architect and designed SALT's lending platform, as well as built out the engineering department, uh, which included uh, Aiden McClelland, who's Keegan's younger brother, uh, came out from California uh, at our, you know, uh, um, begging. <laughs> he was fantastic. We wanted to get him out. Uh, and then Aaron Greenspan uh, came over. Uh, we hired Lucy Cifarello. Um, and those five became the core of Start9 later. Now, long story short, I ended up CTO at Salt Lending, um, ultimately had severe ideological differences with Salt's entire leadership, uh, as did my partners, and we all walked, we left. Uh, we could not agree on a future that fit our morality, um, and we left. And we didn't know what we were gonna do. Uh, like I said at the beginning, we just sort of said, hey, this is the best people I've ever worked with. Uh, you know, it didn't work out at Salt, but let's do something, let's do something together. And, um, 
and that's it. That's it was me, Keegan, Aiden, and Aaron were the founding team at Start Nine. We later brought Lucy over from Salt. She stuck around for a little while and took on the lead developer position at Salt after we had left. Uh, we brought her over, and then uh, Aaron ended up leaving. So you have the three founders, which is me, Keegan, and Aiden, the two brothers, and Lucy uh, is a, de a developer at Start Nine. Um, and then we have a couple other people recent as well. We have Chris Guida, who taught me how to code originally. He was, we were uh, living together back uh, years ago now, maybe six, seven years ago. And um, he was a dev, I was not, and I wanted to get into it. And I attacked it with ferocity, but he was there to kind of, you know, tell me to look it up myself most of the time. But if I really got stuck, uh, he would give me a hint. Uh, it was very brutal, but I, I thank him for it because it made me a good, made me a good coder. Um, and, uh, and then we've also recently hired uh, Kiara Burgermeister as our lead of ops, um, really taking on the kind of physical aspect of, of the company. Um, and then David Croissant is uh, taking on a lot of our documentation, customer support, uh, community management stuff. So that's the whole team. It's very small, uh, five developers and two non-developers. And when you were in that room and you know, I, I totally appreciate the, uh, you know, the motivation behind just saying like, we've got a really special group of people here. Let's, we could probably, you know, we're in a special environment. Let's do something together. And I think that's awesome. But what was it in particular? Was it ideology? Was it hole in the market? Was it, this is just a big, massive problem that needs to be fixed? Like what, what was it that brought everyone together to converge on this particular solution for, you know, whatever all your talents were? Uh, yeah, great question. Um, our first business hypothesis was a Bitcoin derivatives exchange, a la Ledger X, right, where people could buy and sell options. And um, we definitely felt that we had the, primarily through Keegan, the financial acumen to understand how to build something like that. Like not even from a coding perspective, just an understanding of how finance works. Keegan is an expert. Um, but also from a coding perspective to build something that is high performant, you know, mission critical market making stuff. Um, and so we said, we can build that and we can build it. We think better than anybody out there. We were aware of Ledger X and we just thought we could crush it. And we only got a couple weeks down that road before we realized that our future was full of lawyers and bureaucrats and restrictions and probably death, um, that it was a dead end in the long term. Uh, even if there was a business opportunity in the short term, uh, we just couldn't live with ourselves by living like that. And so, you know, while that was cool, it didn't work out. The idea for Start9 came about when, you know, we are just generally lovers of Bitcoin and, you know, we were all over it. We understand it as much as anyone can understand it. And, um, you know, we're really starting to get into lightning at the time. And so Keegan runs out and he sets up his lightning node and goes through the whole thing. And he's like, yeah, I got it set up and buying some stickers. And, you know, it's like, cool. All right, I'm going to do mine. So I sit down and I'm an application developer. Okay. I live up here. I'm, I, I can, I can Frankenstein together an iOS app in three days. Okay. Minimally functional. I can build, I can, I'm an application developer. I'm not a, not educated in computer science and network architecture. I don't know the lower layers of the stack. I can do it. It's just hard. So I go to sit down to do lightning. And I, I already had a Bitcoin node running. I was just like, you gotta be fucking kidding me. 
I'm sitting there looking at the docs to do lightning. And I was like, I'm going to spend all week doing this. <laughs> like, you know, and at the time there was no plug and play solution. Casa was like just coming out with their lightning addition to the Casa node, right? It was Bitcoin and they were just adding lightning, but I wanted to do it myself to see what that was, right? I wasn't going to go out and buy the Casa node. Um, and I just got, I, I was immediately frustrated and I didn't want to do it. I was just like, I went to Keegan and, and Aiden and I was just like, I don't want to go through this. Why is this so hard? Like, why, why can't this be batched up at minimum into a script where everything will just run for me, but at max where I could just like treat it like an app? Well, that kicked them off because they're geniuses and they started talking about like, well, what we need is a Bitcoin operating system. <laughs> we need an OS that is designed specifically to handle the discovery, download, installation, and configuration of Bitcoin services. And we got really excited about that idea. And we bought a Raspberry Pi that day to start tinkering with Raspbian or Raspberry Pi OS and start seeing what it would, what, what adjustments would be needed to enable that kind of OS. Um, we also uh, scheduled a, a dinner with uh, Jameson Lop and uh, Nick Newman over at Casa to see their thoughts on this and what they had been, you know, because they were moving in this direction. But, you know, it only took us about a day or two of talking about Bitcoin OS, which we originally called BOSS, B-O-S. Um, and it only took us a day or two to realize that if we were going to build out BOSS for Bitcoin, that almost all of it would have been, could be built in such a way that would also enable you to run your own private email server that it would enable you to run your own private file system. And so it went from running Bitcoin OS to running like open source software OS very quickly. And we, we went and sat down with Jameson and we were like, what do you guys think about this? Like, are you doing this at Casa? Are you gonna add an email server to the Casa node? Are you gonna, and they, they did not seem interested in it, right? They were focused on what we now know, pivoting the business model away from hardware and the plug and play node towards a uh, secure storage, um, part multi-sig participatory service, software subscription service, which is great. They can do what they want. And I personally don't use it. I've heard great things. They're great people, but they were not interested in the same thing that we were interested in. We were interested in building out this, this operating system um, and they were not. So we basically walked away from that meeting being like, well, if they're the front runners in the plug and play node world, and they're not in any way considering what we're considering, that makes us probably the best positioned people in the world, given what we understand, to pursue this vision. And we hit the ground running. Uh, we woke up the next day and just started coding. Um, and it only took us four months to put a prototype on the shelf. Does their experience with hardware and particularly pivoting to a software subscription model or, you know, a subscription model, uh, you know, cause you any trepidation in terms of, you know, why they might have made a switch like that? Or did you, did, you know, was that part of the conversation or anything like that? It was a little bit part of the conversation, but only implicitly um, mm -hmm. in that they, Casa is a very proudly fully remote company. Um, in fact, they don't, Jameson doesn't want to know where he, people to know where he is. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's very hard to run a brick and mortar physical hardware business with no center, with no, uh, staging ground for assembly and shipping and logistics. You need an address, okay? And that doesn't mean that, you know, a couple of people at Casa couldn't have done that, which they could have, but hardware is hard. It is a 
challenge. Um, now, that doesn't mean it can't be done. It just means it's a different business model, right? Like I come from the physical world. My background is not software development. I grew up in a wholesale bread and bagel bakery, right? Massive shipments in, massive shipments out, production lines, the whole deal, um, which was family owned. So I grew up running that business. Um, I was then involved in wholesale mass production plastics recycling, where you're talking 70,000 square foot warehouses with huge machinery and you're shredding plastic and shipping to China and pulling in from Europe. I mean, it is massive shipping logistics, physical industries. Um, and then amongst other things uh, that fill my, my past. But I'm not afraid of hardware. I'm not afraid of supply chain, managing supply chains and inventory and shipping and logistics. And these things make sense to me and they're hard, but that's a good thing. It means it's a barrier to entry, right? Like we can, we can compete on a different axis by being in this business. Mm -hmm. um, secondly, you know, we saw and see, continue to see opportunities for alternative revenue streams. I mean, we are rapidly rising in the ranks right now of lightning nodes and we're very new to the game but we are building and will continue to build a major presence on the lightning network as a company um, well capitalized well connected well balanced we will lend liquidity we will charge transfer fees we're going to build uh, a business on top of lightning secondly we knew that by doing what we're doing, if you just look at the past, right? Look at the prior personal computing revolution, which was led by Apple and Microsoft, we'll say, right? And then later Facebook and Google. But what they did was they positioned themselves in the front row of the future, right? They built the interface between this new technology and grandma. They built that interface. And when you have that interface and you control that interface, you can see things coming before others, right? Like when, when the original Mac you know, 2 came out um, or the Apple 2 and then later the Mac, they didn't foresee, I don't think, uh, you know, Spotify and uh, you know, Instagram. These things were at the application layer that came later. However, they were so perfectly positioned to see them coming as the platform that you know, they were able to capitalize on it. And we think that our positioning, um, which is growing very quickly, actually, um, I mean, we're, we're not selling a couple dozen of these devices. We are selling a lot of these. And we're going to have that, that primary touch point with the end user that will enable us to basically jump on the bandwagon of any cool new thing that's coming about. Take Sphinx, for instance. It's like, mm -hmm you know, or lightning even, where if somebody buys an embassy and installs lightning, LND, well, they want some inbound liquidity. So given that it's our operating system and they just installed LND, we can absolutely throw a little pop-up of this, just like, hey, you want some inbound liquidity? Open a channel with us, we'll open one with you. You don't have to do it. It's all optional, but it gives us this sort of like touch point, this access point to the user that is really rare. Um, and uh, so we don't know how we're going to monetize in the future. We don't know what opportunities will arise, but we sense very strongly that when you destroy an old system and build a new one, those opportunities will not be in short supply. Mm -hmm. What, uh, you know, you say you've been operating for a year, seems to be a lot of demand. 
What's uh, the top thing that people give you in terms of positive feedback, something that they're really finding super useful about the product? And also what's you know the biggest stumbling block or complaint or area that people think needs to be improved? Yep, I, I know exactly those two. So number one is that we, if you uh, get into our Telegram channel or I were to be able to share, and I probably will anonymously, of course, share some of the emails that we get, the number one reaction to initially setting up and using the embassy is um, sort of surprise that it actually worked. Uh, people, I think, get a lot of plug and play, you know, pitches. And um, if you see some of the, the messages that we get on our community Telegram channel, it's people with a ton of exclamation points being like, I did it. Oh my God. I like took it out of the box. I plugged it in and everything just worked. This is incredible. I can't believe it. I'm running lightning. <laughs> They're just like really stoked that they're finally like joining this rite of passage of like running these services and being sovereign and being private and that they didn't need to, to waste two weeks figuring out, you know, what commands to enter. So we are very proud of the user experience that we have created uh, and, and the reliability of that experience. The biggest um, complaint uh, that we get, I don't know if complaint is the right word, uh, it's the biggest issue that is reported is network availability. It's really Tor and LAN. It's like people have all sorts of different routers and they live in all different places in the world. And it's like sometimes Tor just has problems, right? Sometimes their ISP is like randomly blocking Tor traffic. Sometimes their router is 10 years old and doesn't support the MDNS protocol. And so for the same reason that they can't use a wireless printer, they also can't find their embassy on their local area network. So where we're running into problems is that interface with, is the network interface. And, you know, Tor will eventually come back. It's like, oh, you're having a problem reaching your embassy over Tor, wait an hour, <laughs> it'll come back. It's just buggy. And so it's not really our product, but it is things that we rely upon uh, for reliability that tend to be very glitchy, very buggy. And so we are taking measures to solve this, right? So our, our approach to solving um, uptime reliability, network reliability is optionality. It is, you have many ways of reaching your embassy. So in the early days, it was just Tor. That's the only way that you could talk to your embassy because you initially set it up. At the completion of setup, your embassy popped out a Tor address and said, here's where I live. Go find me. Go plug me into a browser and you can, you can find me. Recently, because of the attacks that took place on Tor in January and February, we realized that this was not a sustainable practice, that we needed to offer a second way of reaching your embassy. So we used the certificate infrastructure that we had built out prior because we knew we were going to go here eventually and allowed all of your services to be served up on LAN over HTTPS. Now, later, there's other internet protocols that we could use, such as Lightning, <laughs> right? Uh, such as uh, I2P, which is highly experimental and in the early days. But ultimately, ultimately, and this is where I sort of will say something and then not get too detailed because it is a future but inevitable battleground for us is mesh networking, is the ISPs themselves are the final gatekeepers of the internet. And as long as we are relying upon the ISPs, 
for connectivity, nothing is safe, nothing is sacred. They can cut anybody off. Even if they don't know what you're doing, they can see that you're using Tor. And that might be enough someday to be like, nah, you're done, see ya. Like, no, you're not allowed to use Tor. Um, and so that's, that's what we need to do eventually. Um, now there's a lot of people uh, who talk about mesh networking and building a new internet. And they talk about it in a very idealistic, kind of impractical way, which is, all right, everybody, let's all start doing this new thing, and then we'll be on a new internet. And there's a very heavy network effect chicken and egg problem there, which is like, I'm not going to do this thing unless my neighbor's doing this thing. They're not going to do it unless their neighbor's doing it. And so nobody's going to do it um, unless there's some like major inciting event or it's like force, you know, you have to use force. Um, if you want to build a new internet, you we think that our approach is the number one strategy to take, which is offer a product that has nothing to do with that, right? When you buy an embassy today, you do not care if anyone on earth has an embassy. There's no network effect consideration here. You get private selfish utility out of your server. You can use it for password management alone. You're good to go doesn't require any P2P networks, no network effect, nothing. You buy it just for you. Now, if your neighbor happens to buy one just for them, and their neighbor happens to buy one just for them, and next thing you know, Embassy OS 5.0 comes with a toggle in the settings that says, mesh it. <laughs> and suddenly, anyone who turns that toggle on can now be meshed together with other people in their geographic region that also turn that toggle on. Now you've just sort of turned on this new means of networking that completely bypasses the ISPs, but it was a bit of a Trojan horse, right? It wasn't, we weren't selling these devices as mesh networking devices. We're selling them as siloed, self-contained devices that in the future could absolutely be enabled to build their own mesh networks, which connect to other mesh networks, which is then called a new internet. Yeah, that's crazy exciting. Um, and would it be able to be done in that way? Just as like you push out a software or something, or does it have to be a hardware component to integrating that into the? There'd the, have to. The, there'd the have to be a hardware component. Yeah. Um, but you know, we're again, we're still in the early days. Like that's why I don't talk a lot about mesh networking is because yeah. this really is a decade or more long journey. You think um, so? Yeah. I do. That sucks. Oh, come on, man. We, you got the stamina. We, we're, this isn't over. I just think we're going to need it sooner, you know? I, I think we might need it sooner than that. But Well, uh, need drives. Yeah, necessity innovation. is the mother of all invention, right? Yeah, so the, the worse it gets, the faster it'll happen. And things definitely have accelerated in the past year, past couple of years. But um, that's why we're here. And we are working very quickly. But we also don't want to mislead people and say, you know, we're dropping a new internet next year. It's just like, it's not going to happen. You know, this is a long battle. Yeah. Um, last question, kind of along those lines, but, you know, bull markets uh, are such, you know, they're exciting. And of course, they bring a lot of new entrants in. And um, a lot of the participants, the companies or the podcasts or whatever in the space receive a lot of new interest, right? New signups, new listeners, whatever. Your product is obviously heavily Bitcoin oriented, but not exclusively Bitcoin oriented. Has the last six months uh, brought with it? I know you've only been operating a year, so maybe it's not a great, 
you know, not a yeah. great way to assess it, but have you guys gotten a lot of accelerated interest in, in particular in the last six months? Like what's, what's happening in terms of your footprint and people's awareness and the popularity of the product and all that kind of stuff? Um, it's very hard to drive or to assess causal relationships. Um, our sales have definitely ticked up huge in the last six months compared to the first six months. But I cannot say with any degree of certainty that that has anything to do with the Bitcoin bull market because there were other major inciting events along the way, um, such as the 2020 election, uh, COVID, draconian measures all over the world by governments to crack down on encryption, new bills introduced in the US House of Representatives like LEAD and EARN IT. Um, also just our own brand awareness, right? Like I started doing some of the, the podcast circuit, you know, eight to nine months ago, and I've done a few. And it, it, so we're just growing in awareness. I think that's the primary driver is that it's not that our market is expanding, right? Your question essentially comes down to Bitcoin bull markets bring new participants to the market and therefore Bitcoin oriented companies benefit from this in, enhanced market. I don't think that's what's happening for us. Um, I think what's what's happening is we are more aggressively tapping the, the market that is already in existence, might be growing, but I don't think that's the primary driver of growth. I think it's just our awareness. When people find out what the problem is, like once people become aware of how the internet actually works, right, as in your computer, your desktop, your laptop, your cell phone, are all just remote controls to somebody else's computer. Once that really sinks in and you realize that every button you push is really just operating a computer in some bunker in Nevada that Facebook owns, um, it you start to, it's, it, it like hits you very deeply. Like privacy is a deeply ingrained necessity of human nature, not only for the free function and the functioning of a free society, but for your own personal kind of spiritual well-being, if you want to call it that. Like if someone's just watching you, you can imagine even being a kid when you're trying to learn something and like the experts and adults are watching you. There's like this feeling of like, let me just, let me go off on my own here. Like privacy mm -hmm. is inherent in our biology. I feel, I, I, under, I feel that uh, even without running the science to prove it. Personally, I need it. Um, but anyway, once people really understand that this is what's happening, that everything they do online is intermediated, everything that when I chat with my loved one on iMessage, that it's like having an Apple employee sitting in your living room, listening to your most intimate conversations and all the while saying, don't worry, I won't tell anyone. Don't worry, your secrets are safe with me. And it's just like, and all the while handing you papers to sign saying that you agree to let them sit in your living room and that you acknowledge that they will not share your data. Once people grasp that, Embassies sell themselves. There isn't a lot of like convincing that we have to do beyond just making people aware of the problem. And then secondly, making them aware of the solution, which in short, the very shortest way that I can uh, describe the solution to this centralized surveillance internet that we currently have is self-hosting. That's right. it, self-host. Stop using somebody else's computer, use your own computer. And then they go, how do I do that? And until us, the answer was go buy a Raspberry Pi, go repurpose an old Linux box and install Ubuntu and then go start installing and you're done. You've, you've lost everyone. Mm -hmm. So we think what we're building is very, very important, very timely, very powerful. 
Um, and it works is the, is the best part of this, is that we're not blowing smoke. We're developers first. If you go to our website or you look at like our GitHub and stuff like that, you'll see how bad we are at marketing. <laughs> like, like we are not a marketing company. In fact, I would love to have someone, we don't even have a YouTube video. We do not have a single YouTube video of us showing the product or doing anything. It's like we write code and then I do podcasts. And that's our business model is we write code and I do podcasts. And eventually we're going to have a hell of a marketing engine and this thing's going to take off. Because again, if you just look at our community, if anyone were to come into that Telegram channel and just observe for five days, the passion and enthusiasm behind this company and our product is what you would expect to see from some shit coin where all the people in the channel are expecting to get rich, where it's like they shill it because it's it's a an investment, right? They're viewing it as like, hey, the more people I bring on, the more money I make. We don't offer that. You have no incentive to shill our product other than because you know it is good and right. And our customers shill the shit out of us, which is a testament to, to what we've built. Um, now, I, I'll stop bragging. Just <laughs> well, that's, 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 that sounds good. I can't, I can't wait to hop into the Telegram group and, and, and feel <laughs> some of that juice. Um, and I think because that was going to be one of the final questions and you, you basically covered it at the beginning, but just to clarify for everyone, it's like you can use all these so-called encrypted, you know, secure privacy oriented apps and stuff like that. But as long as you're not self-hosting it, you can be shut out, cut off, disintermediated, whatever. Right. Yeah. So it's just that that you know that final level of autonomy over the ability to use a lot of these services, right? Yes. Um, and you guys, again, just to reiterate, because I think you did cover this, if you guys go away, you know, if the three-letter agency knocks on your respective doors and is like, you guys are fucking shit up, it that doesn't matter, right? Because well, it matters to me. Well, it matters to you, but to to <laughs> to the. The people that are using the product, these open source tools and, and hosting them themselves, you guys going away is not mission critical, right? Somebody else can come in to fill certain gaps or it will continue working at a, at a minimum level, yeah. even if Start9 goes away. Is that the right way of characterizing it? That is correct in essence, though there are practical considerations that would be unpleasant, right? So uh, we are taking measures actively and every day to move towards an answer to that question that says you will not miss a beat, right? We need to get to the point where we are completely irrelevant. And the only way that we maintain our business is through brand reputation and convenience, right? Whereas if those go away, the technology and the product are just completely untouched. At present, there's a couple areas where that is not exactly true. Uh, number one, and the biggest one is the marketplace. It's that currently, when you open up your embassy OS dashboard and you go to the start nine service marketplace, you are browsing open source self-hosted services, just like you would in the Apple app store, but you're browsing it on our marketplace, our store. If we got shut down, marketplace goes away. There's nothing for you to install. Now, these are open source code, even the wrappers around them, right? Like the things that we are hosting on our marketplace, which is like Bitcoin with a wrapper around it so that it knows how to speak embassy OS. It's that liaison between the user and Bitcoin. Um, that is open source. So you can go get it from GitHub and put it on your embassy. It's just not gonna be as convenient as going to our 
beautiful, well-designed marketplace and downloading it. Mm -hmm. So there's inconvenience that would come along with us disappearing tomorrow. But the essence of the product, which is a Raspberry Pi in a box running an open source operating system, good luck. Good luck stopping that, right? Yeah. That's why we chose the stack that we chose is because we knew that if we were central to this and we ever got big enough, we would be shut down, right? That they would see us as the choke point and they'd choke us. So at first, Embassy OS was not open source. It was not open source because we weren't ready for it to be open source yet. The community was not demanding it. There was no threat of censorship or being shut down by the three-letter agencies. And it was we were still working out security bugs. We didn't want to open it up until we felt reasonably confident that it was good. And so, but we were in a race to open it up because in my mind, I was like, guys, every day that our source code stays closed source um, is an opportunity for a government agency to come in and give us a gag order and say, build in a back door. Right. And don't tell anyone. Oh, and by the way, you can never open source, like to, to put controls on it. So I knew that open sourcing the code was like this huge day in the sun of just being like, oh, they can't do that anymore. Like, mm -hmm. you know, there's no threat anymore of them coming in and telling us to build in a backdoor to Embassy OS because everyone would see it. It's in broad daylight. Yeah. And we have a canary on our website too that would protect against uh, that to a degree as well. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I, I think. Because, you know, who knows what kind of future we're moving into here, but uh, it could be one where such things become uh, contentious because the existing, you know, the, the powers that be, let's say, will will continue to constrain uh, and, you know, amplify their attempts to gather information and to control communication and that kind of stuff. And so they'll be far more uh, focused on, you know, stopping the people that are seeking to uh, fight that trend, uh, buck that trend, or 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 create solutions that make that more difficult. So, and you know, it, it's it it does seem like we may be heading in that way. And so, I think something like what you guys, what it sounds like you're building, is uh, you know a, a tool that is probably going to be desperately needed um, by a lot of people. You know, and so you know, I, I take everything you say today at face value. Obviously, I'm, I'm you know I'm not. I don't have the expertise to uh, assess every single thing, but um, I love the initiative and I love what it sounds like you guys are trying to build. So, uh, you know, kudos to you and the team for taking on such an important task because it's, it's critical, you know, uh, another, another tool in the, in the arsenal of people seeking greater privacy, sovereignty, autonomy, freedom. I mean, that's what this whole thing is about. Yep. Right. I mean, that as far as I'm concerned, that's what it's all about. And to have more and more tools that are more and more resilient, that's the name of the game. I mean, the complaining about stuff and protesting and all that shit, that that's irrelevant, mostly irrelevant. You know, we 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 gotta just we gotta make the tools, you know, like Buckminster Fuller, right? You know, don't don't cry about the problems of the world, you know, develop solutions that make the problems obsolete or or whatever that quote uh, said. And I, I couldn't agree more. Same. Um, yeah, we, we um, are very passionate about what we're building from an ideological moral standpoint. We feel like we're on a mission. Uh, we mean it. Integrity is the only thing on our list. Not really, but it's at the top. Um, it's non-compromising. We're not here to build a business. We are here to add to do our part in adding liberty to the world, to make it easier, 
for those who seek it to be free, which is becoming harder and harder. But the more things there are, uh, like Bitcoin and like us, um, the the more the fight seems dire to those to our opponents, right? Like, I don't want to get into a fight, right? Why that gets ugly. Mm -hmm. uh, my only real fear is war, uh, real war, you know. And I recognize that there's enough sociopaths and power in the world today that um, that is a very real possibility. However, if it is impractical, right? So I see sovereign individual behind you there. Um, you know, that book single handedly converted me from a pessimist to an optimist. Um, it did not fundamentally teach me new things. It turned the prism on history and showed me what was unfolding in a new light, such that I began to feel like this tidal wave of new technology would sort of just like wipe the, the old system off the table, that it was almost going to be like a blowout, you know, like the boxing match that gets all hyped up, you know, where it's all just some marketing spree where it's like, oh, this newcomer is going to da da da. And it's just like the, the fight comes and the guy just kicks the crap out of the other. Guy. And you're just like, oh, we should have looked at the fundamentals, right? Like the fundamentals here is that the incentive structure is so beautifully different than the old one that you don't even, you don't have to just be a sociopath to want to stick with the old model you need to be like a self-destructing one. Like you don't even need to be self-interested, right? At least when we think of people in power, we think of them as like, well, I don't care about anybody else. I'm going to do whatever it takes to augment my own power. I think that's the, the primary portrait of a, of a person in high power today is that they're willing to sacrifice others to themselves, right? But what if they recognize that to flourish, <laughs> that isn't going to work? Right? Like the incentive structure is so lopsided now that they actually have a better chance of flourishing by getting on the bandwagon rather than by getting run over by it. And if enough people in power start to recognize this, then maybe we can avoid that final climactic battle where people get hurt. Um, and maybe we, this can be a smoother transition than I originally thought it could be. And what I've come to realize is that the more projects there are, the more demonstrations of the immutability and uncancelability of decentralized projects, the more examples there are of those in the world, the more apparent it will be that the battle is fruitless, right? The, yeah, the, the more they'll be like, oh, well, yeah, we've we tried with this, but they're popping up everywhere. Like, we might as well just profit from this rather than trying to stop it. Like right. let the profit motive overwhelm them. And which is why it's so important to us as a company to not be central to this, right? We are at present, like we are still, you know, we, I answered this a minute ago, like there's still some, some turbulence that would happen if we went missing here, uh, the company, but like uh, it doesn't disappear. And every day we are striving more and more to, to accomplish that. And in so doing, deter any attacks against us. Like why would somebody walk into our office and say, guys, we're shutting you down. Stop doing what you're doing. We're gonna do this. Why would they do that 
if doing that, if they knew that doing that would cause 30 decentralized instances of us to pop up, like they would prefer one company <laughs> to come talk to, even if it's a rational conversation, just like, hey, we'd, we'd love for you to tell us some things or talk to us, rather than shooting the company and dealing with what happens next, which is, oh, you destroy us and you get 30 replicas that pop up overnight on tour. Good luck, right? So we're actually protecting ourselves by making ourselves irrelevant. It's a weird paradigm. It's a weird way to battle. It's like yeah. we make ourselves powerless to protect ourselves. Yeah, and I think that's what's so great about the nature of technology today and the possibilities that it permits. You know, that's why I characterize all this stuff as tools of sovereignty. And again, taking from the sovereign individual, the book, I mean, that's that's what it's all about. Like you mentioned, becoming uncancelable, right? Uncancelled by your internet service provider, by a company, by the government, because that's what freedom is. The freedom yes. to express yourself, whatever that may be, so long as it doesn't directly harm others, right? Like that's that's the whole point here. And what can we become when we have that degree of freedom? So many of us don't even know because we've never been, that proposition has never been posed to us. Like what, you know, what's the, the highest expression of your creativity or your your strength or your courage or whatever? It's never really been posed because we've been boxed in both by ourselves and by the structures of the the. The, the, the structures that have been erected in society around us to keep us within a certain, you know, to keep us on a certain path, as it were. And uh, I, I just, you know, this is why I wanted to speak with you today is because I, I think you're building another tool of sovereignty that people can use to become more uncancelable, to establish more freedom in their life. And as a result of more and more people doing that, as you said, to change the incentive of the big monolithic you know, top of the pyramid power structures that exist of, of these centralized systems that exist today. You, we have to change their own thinking about things, right? Their own, you know, analysis of how they want to achieve their ends and, and try to, as much as possible, make sure that, you know, their ends don't conflict with the ends of free individuals, you know, i.e. cooperation. And that's, you know, hopefully how we all get to yeah. live in a better world. Yep. And, and technology drives it, politics reacts to it, exactly. um, as that book taught me. Yeah. And so we're technologists. We are trying to change history by inventing new technology. Now, when you say a tool, I appreciate it, but I will make it clear to your audience that we are trying to be the toolbox. Right. <laughs> um, and it's, 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 it's a subtle but important difference because even Bitcoin needs an operating system. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin needs... Linux or whatever, right? It needs to live on some kind of operating system which interfaces with hardware that allows it to exist. And if that operating system is not user-friendly, Bitcoin's market, sovereign market, mind you, because you can use Bitcoin while using somebody else's node, right? But not just Bitcoin, but Bitwarden. All these sovereign tools all these services, apps, however you want to think of them, P2P networks, all of that stuff, if you want to run them the right way, as in not relying on a third party, no intermediary, no third party custodians, non-custodial, you have to have a grandma-friendly operating system, which does not exist. We think that what we are building <laughs> is sort of paramount, whether it's us or somebody else. Honestly, as long as the future gets created, I'm okay with it. But somebody 
needs to build, and we have we are the closest to having accomplished this, an operating system that anyone can use to install any variety of self-hosted software without needing a command line or technical expertise. Otherwise, we're cutting off 90% of the market. There's this constant thing that comes up in Bitcoin conversations, which is like, what prevents Bitcoin from becoming gold? What prevents it from becoming this like, nobody has physical gold, but they all keep the physical gold with somebody else. And therefore there's no gold. And it's all just like, what stops Bitcoin from going down that same path? Well, the answer is you got to hold your own Bitcoin, mm -hmm. right? In a sovereign, private, non-trusting way and run your own node to verify that you have it. And if the answer to, well, how do you do that? is a six step command line all weekend type of endeavor, we are going to end up building the same structure that we've built before, which is that you have a sovereign thing like gold, but it gets sort of, it gets corralled within a non-sovereign thing and nobody even realizes it. They're sort of outside of that and they just, it falls back to trust. So from our perspective, if Bitcoin is going to remain decentralized, if the future is going to be private and sovereign, you, it has to be easy as pie to run these things on your own physical hardware. Again, not on AWS, not on DigitalOcean. You have to have your own physical hardware device in your home. Otherwise, AWS, you're just transferring who has the switch. It's like, who can cut you off? Is it the app developer? No. Is it, right? The answer should be nobody. The answer should be nobody can cut you off. Right. And the only way to do that is to go the extra last mile, which even Bitcoiners are afraid to do. It's the, it's the, because it's the layer beneath Bitcoin, right? It's not, it's not like run a bunch of self, not self-hosted. It's not like run a bunch of privacy software. Take Signal. Signal is my favorite example of this. It's like Signal is the next step towards privacy, towards sovereignty, away from say WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger or even Telegram. It's like, okay, you use Signal and it's end-to-end -end encrypted, we think, and there's no backdoors, we think, and they have a general history of not cutting people off, right? And so at present, it kind of acts as this like pseudo-private, pseudo-sovereign messaging platform. But we all know where this ends. If Signal gets popular enough and things get bad enough, backdoors, censorship, you name it, it can't survive. It can't, not if it becomes a, a target because it's a central entity and everyone's running on their servers. So we are the final mile. We view what we are doing as the last phase, the final step towards a sovereign digital life is rely on nobody for anything. Run your own hardware, running your own operating system, running your own services in your home over Tor. That's it, we're the final mile. So what happens is after Signal goes through its rise and fall, who knows how long this is going to take? Where does everybody go next? Signal had what, 20, 30 million users transfer over to them last month after all the uh, WhatsApp stuff came out and stuff like that. Like Signal was this huge hit and everybody's moving over to Signal. Where do they go next? Where's the next land of freedom? Where's the next free messaging service? Mm -hmm. um, we're doing it. So Matrix is the answer. I don't know if you know what Matrix is. Uh, look it up. Matrix.org um, is a self-hosted, open source, 
federated messaging protocol. Uh, it's similar to Mastodon in its federated nature in that you can run a server, a matrix server, and others can create accounts on your server. Mm -hmm. So you can Uncle Jim it for your friends and family, or you can run your own matrix server, and you can talk to anyone on earth who, is, who has an account on any matrix server, including group chats, video chats, video calls, um, you name it. It's, it's a full featured, like Matrix is not some early stage project. Matrix is a massive, fully featured, huge active development messaging protocol, federated messaging protocol that they, of course, like any open source team needs to monetize. And so they have servers. There's the Matrix home server. And so it's like the easiest, fastest way to get started on Matrix is to create an account on their server and pay them. Great. Well, now you're back to Signal. Matrix has just replaced Signal and there's no difference. But Matrix is designed to be self-hosted and federated. So you don't have to do it that way. So we run as a company, we run our own Matrix instance. We do it, all our internal DMs to each other, all our group chats. We have a community channel on our Matrix server that anyone with a Matrix account, whether it's on their own server or the home server, Matrix home server, doesn't matter. They can join our community channel. And we are about to release Matrix, about to. I, it's going to be a couple of months. Um, we're going to release Matrix on the embassy. And that is the end of the road. Now, you could argue that something like Sphinx, Sphinx Relay with chat support is sort of from a censorship, immutability, sovereignty standpoint, equivalent to Matrix. But there is an essential difference that we are excited to see how it plays out, is that Sphinx chat, uh, chatting over Sphinx built on Lightning, built on Bitcoin, has this dependency graph, which is inherently, at least today, a bit of uh, risk from a reliability standpoint, right? Like if your Lightning node is experiencing issues, it's like you can't chat anymore. The fact that Sphinx is dependent on Lightning means that Lightning better be rock solid and that is a rapidly developing protocol that every upgrade Sphinx is going to have to upgrade. So it's under rapid development. I think there might be benefit. Oh, and it's based on money, meaning anytime you want to like message with somebody, you're inherently doing transactions, which is only, again, by Sphinx's own claims, the primary purpose of building a chat application on top of money is to create proper incentives or to disincentivize spam. So if you're direct messaging somebody, why would you need it on top of lightning? That's like using a Ferrari to drive down a street, right? Uh, full of traffic. It's just like, just send the person a message on server to server. It's perfectly fine. You don't need this kind of like infrastructure. It doesn't mean it's not going to be useful or going to win, but we don't, we don't have a horse in the race. We're just like, hey, let's check it out. Like Matrix, in our opinion, is like the end game of messaging. It's self-hosted, it's sovereign, it's end-to-end -end encrypted, even group chats are encrypted. It has all the features you could ever imagine. It's killer fast. It's amazing. It's like the best piece of messaging software ever created. And you can run it on a Raspberry Pi out of your home and talk to anyone in the world with no censorship resistant possible or censorship possibilities. And then you have Stinks building this other thing that's also going after this. And they're both going to be runnable on the embassy with the click of a button. And we're going to see what happens. We're just going to, we just want people to have the option. Yeah, that's that was going to be my last question. Actually, bringing up Mastodon because that's become a bit more well known in, in the Bitcoin space, at least in the last couple of months. People are are 
are hosting Mastodon and other people are using their their server. Is, is the embassy just like the ideal way to do all self-hosting? That's basically what we're saying. So like, yeah, sure, I, I might be able to, to host it in some other way, but like the most secure, most sovereign, most autonomous way to, whether it's Matrix, Mastodon, you know, whatever I want to self-host, this is the, you know, the probably the, the most optimal, optimal, least cancelable way of hosting these self-hosted services. 100%. It is. As, as long as you are using someone else's computer, there is some degree, even if you really trust this person, there's some degree of risk in, involved, right? Where trust, I mean, where they could censor you. But I mean, if, if it's even me, like I'm hosting my own Mastodon, you mm -hmm. know. You should host your own Mastodon. It's available right. on the embassy as a click of a button. Yeah. We already launched Mastodon. And, and hosting it on the embassy is the best, you know, for all, what I'm saying is for all my yeah. things that I want to self-host, a container like that is the best way to do it. Yes, hands down. Or, and when you say like that, that's important because it doesn't need to be an embassy, mm -hmm. right? Like that, in my mind, is a physical device that has been fully allocated to do this, as in it never turns off. It needs to be 24-7, 365, running all the time, constant uptime um, with these services running in your home and in the future with geographic redundancy. Right. Man, I am pumped. Uh, I like the way that future sounds and uh, yeah. I, I can't wait to interact with it more. Um, any last words before we shut this down? And you want to get any shills in or direct people anywhere, anything like that? Um, yeah, I, a, a little bit. So, you know, I, I do some of the podcasting and stuff like that. Um, and I just want to make it clear to anyone listening to this, um, that the team at start nine is, I, I want to give a shout out to my team. In other words, uh, I tend to be doing a lot of the podcasting and stuff like that, but, but there's nothing without the genius of my partners and the people who we have recently brought on to, to help grow this company. Um, Everyone, you know, listening who's interested, jump into the Telegram channel. We are always there. Every member of the team is in the channel all the time. Obviously, we're working most of the time, but we're present. You can interact with us directly. Follow the team on Twitter. Um, we take a lot of pride in what we're doing, and we appreciate the, the outpouring of support that we have gotten to date, and we look forward to more of it, and we look forward to delivering uh, on our promises. And so um, check them out. Uh, you know, quick listing of the team um, is me, Aiden McClelland, Keegan McClelland are the two brothers and my original founders of Start9, Lucy Cifarello, awesome developer, um, Chiara Bergermeister runs our ops department, David Croissant's community and support, Chris Guida um, is, you know, uh, our most recent developer hire, awesome guy, uh, old school Bitcoiner, and please, you know, show the team some support, uh, it's what keeps us going. Um, and buy an embassy. If you want to support the project and you don't know how to code or package up a service, which by the way, you could do, anybody who knows how to code out there, go find your favorite self-hosted service. It can be on Bitcoin. It can be a note-taking app. It could be a forms app. Doesn't matter. Package it up. We'll put it on the marketplace and give you credit for it. Um, and, uh, and buy an embassy. We need money to keep the ship rolling. 
I love it, man. Uh, we're going to have to do this again, maybe in, in six months or so yeah. to see where you guys are at and, and all the changes and development that's happened in the interim period. So uh, thanks so much for the time. Thank you for you, uh, for the work that you and the team are doing and uh, wish you guys all the best. We'll talk again soon. Thanks for having me on. It was great meeting you. Great talking to you. Uh, you too, brother. See ya. See you soon. See you, man.